I realize paying the town's bills isn't the uh, high point of your month, but I'm guessing something else is going on. No, no, everything's fine. Lana, you know you can talk to me about anything. I want to believe that someone can change, but but I'm starting to lose faith. Are we talking about Clark? You know, he uh, he came by the Talon earlier and he kissed me. He kissed you? Yeah. Isn't that what you wanted? I don't, I don't know. Look, I'm, I'm afraid I'm a little jaded in the romance department. The only thing I know about relationships is that someone usually winds up getting hurt. And you don't think I can trust Clark to not do that? I don't think it's about trust. It's like the German poet Rilke said, a person isn't who they are during the last conversation you had with them. They're who they've been throughout your whole relationship. Somebody save me indeed. Hello and welcome to Farm to Fable, a Smallville rewatch fan cast. I am your forever host, Michael, and I'm also the host of the RPG Academy podcast, where I talk mostly about role-playing games, but all tabletop gaming in general. I also organize a three-day gaming convention held in Dayton, Ohio, each November. Before we get started, please be advised that Farm to Fable may include adult language and reference adult behavior. Please consider us PG-13 in regards to content acceptability for your young ones. Also, this is your spoiler warning. While we will focus on each episode week to week, our discussions may and likely will reference the entire series run and the wider Superman mythos. You can email our show at smallvillefancast at gmail.com with any comments, concerns, or questions. Please follow us on Twitter at Farm2Fable and join our Facebook group page at Smallville Farm to Fable. With all of that out of the way, let's meet today's co-host. Hi, my name is Connor. Uh, this is my first time on this podcast, so thank you so much for having me, Michael. Uh, you know, Sm- F- Smallville is kind of my first introduction to the Superman mythos. I really have not seen a ton of Superman media before this, so really, really excited to talk about it. I think this is a really fun uh, episode to kind of get started, so thank you again for having me. Oh, happy to have you here. Uh, we always like to start with our new co-host with what is your Smallville origin story? So you said this is kind of your first introduction to Superman, but how did you come to Smallville? Yeah, so I'm probably, you know, I'm probably one of the only people who was introduced to Smallville through Michael Rosenbaum's podcast and not the other way around, right? Okay. So, you know, I I have, you know, dealt with various mental health, you know, issues through my life. And I really, really kind of like the way that he talks about mental health on his podcast. I really listened to a lot of that. And, you know, once he did the Smallville week with his interviews with uh, Tom Welling, Kristen Kruk, uh, John Glover, I kind of got introduced to the show through that. So that was really my introduction. Uh, again, kind of, as I said before, you know, I really am not a big superhero media person. You know, I, I watch the Marvel movies when they come out, but that's really kind of my only exposure to, I guess, the superhero uh, genre, if you will. Okay. So this is really my first introduction to Superman. And it's, I think, a really, really, really interesting one. Okay, so is is this been pretty recent then? Did you start, like, how long ago would you say you started watching Smallville? Two, three years, five years ago? I, I started watching it uh, over quarantine. See, I guess that was about a year ago at this point. Okay. Um, almost, yeah, I'm, I'm almost done. I think I'm in the middle of season eight right now. But Okay, so that, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, 
pretty an interesting take against someone who came to it this late and also without a huge history of of Superman and superheroes in general. So I'll be yeah. interested to see how some things uh, landed with you in this episode. Uh, but let's jump into the show proper. We have our Pass the Torch question. And last week, Daniel had asked, what occupation do you think you would hold in Smallville? And if you want to include, how do you think that occupation would allow you to interact with our main cast in the show? Any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, I still, one of the funniest things to me about the early season of the show is that they have, you know, a high school freshman, sophomore, essentially running the town, right? I know Aunt Nell's technically like supposed to be there, right? But it's really all Lana, for being honest. So, you know, even with Lex Luthor being kind of an angel investor there, I think I would run the beanery because I feel pretty confident that my coffee shop can beat out a coffee shop that's being run by a high school freshman who, you know, has classes to deal with, is riding horses, doing this, doing that. Like, I can't imagine the town's all that well run. So She's had a lot of concussions, so... A lot of concussions, <laughs> a lot of brain damage. Yeah, I don't know how she's functioning in those later seasons, so... I feel pretty good about that. You know, obviously I think I'd probably run a foul of Lex. I'd probably run a foul of Lana. Can't imagine to have particularly, you know, positive uh, relations with really any of the main cast members, but I think that's what I would do. I feel, I feel pretty confident in the beanery succeeding. Oh, that's great. I love that. Uh, so we kind of joked about it already on the show many times, but I think being the medical examiner in Smallville would be incredible. Now, I have absolutely oh, no gosh. training in that regard, but just being the person that has to deal with all these you know, deaths and try to explain them in some way to the point that you don't have government agencies just swarming Smallville because clearly there's something going on. So either you're in on it and you're trying to hide it or you're clueless and you're just like, everything is like natural causes, even though someone was like frozen to like negative a million centigrade and shattered into pieces. <laughs> I just think that would be like every day you'd have a cool story to share with your loved ones. Like you won't believe what I did today. There was a person who, you know, was a ghost for like a week or something. Who knows? It would just, it would be a lot of fun. And of course, Chloe would be, you know, I'd be one of her points of contact. I'd be sending her information. So I definitely would be in, interacting in some way. Lionel Luther would show up and like threaten me for some reason if I'd tell everybody things. I definitely would get some FaceTime with some of the main cast. I think that would be an amazing spinoff show. I would just love like an Emmy show just set in Smallville. That would be a hoot. All right. So with that out of the way, let's jump into the show here. Uh, we're going to open our Smallville yearbook and see who our notable guest stars are. Hey, Clark. Look who came to check up on you. The legendary Christopher Reeve appears as Dr. Virgil Swan. And we also have Gary Hudson as FBI agent Loader. Uh, now let's grab a copy of this week's Daily Planet and check the bylines to see who brought us this episode. I mean, that's a story that could land you a byline on the front page of the Daily Planet. So we're here today to discuss Season 3, Episode 17, Legacy. The date of original airing was April 14th, 2004. The character of Superman was created by Jerry Seigel and Joe Schuster, and Smallville was created by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. The writer for this episode was Je Jeff Loeb. And Greg Beeman is the director for this one. All righty, Connor, are you now ready to explore the Quachi Caves to get a glimpse of where we came from as well as where we may be going? I am. Let's go. When Jonathan acts strangely, Clark believes that his Kryptonian father, Jor-El, is sending Jonathan messages and is the cause for his father's withdrawal from the family. And that's great and all, but it doesn't tell us what we really need to know. So let's dig a little deeper into these caves and ask the important questions. Does this episode feature a vehicle crashed or otherwise destroyed? Not this week. Does this episode feature someone falling unconscious for any reason? No. Does this episode feature someone in a hospital bed? No. Sorry to you being the medical examiner, but not this week. <laughs> Does this episode feature Clark Tell and you're showing someone besides his forever crush Lana his powers and abilities? 
No, you could debate it, but now I would say yeah. There's a lot of no's in this one, even though I think this is a pretty good episode, but it doesn't hit a lot of the tropes that I'm used to episodes hitting. Yeah, uh, you're right. Does this episode feature Clark using his powers irresponsibly? Shockingly, it's more of a selfish lack of use this time than nothing, but now right. no irresponsible use of powers this week. All right. Does Clark casually break into our business or residence? He does not. Does this episode feature a moment where a character travels a seemingly long way to have a short conversation and then leave? Yes, just like yeah. every episode. If if that doesn't happen, I'm not sure it's Smallville. For real, no, for real. <laughs> Does this episode feature a conversation between two people where one person has their back to the other and is weirdly talking over their shoulder? Yes. And was the person talking weirdly over their shoulder Lex? Of course it was. <laughs> Does this episode feature a particularly thirsty moment for one or more of our characters? Not this week. Does this episode feature a cheeky bit of dialogue that hints at or directly references the wider Superman mythos? So you said sort of in the rundown. I'd love to know once we get there what you're referring to, because I didn't catch anything, but I'm also not, you know, knowledgeable about the Superman myth. Yeah, so and there's a couple that I think are maybe, but they're so slight that it's either unintentional or just not there. Mm-hmm. Does this episode feature a moment with a needle drop wherein a contemporary song perfectly sums up a character's thoughts and or desires? I'd say so, yes. And finally, does this episode feature a classic Smallville leap of logic wherein the characters jump to a correct conclusion around who or what is behind some mysterious event or otherwise solves a problem with little to no actual information to base such conclusions? Yes. Excellent. So now that we have a clear roadmap of where we're going, let's use our x-ray vision and look closely at this week's episode. So in our cold open, while putting a critical piece of equipment on the barn, Jonathan is overcome by a sonic emission from the ship key, causing him to fall from the roof. Clark saves him, but Jonathan is acting odd. Lionel is about to end his own life when a phone call stops him. Clark goes to the cave and is trying to con- contact Jorel when the key begins to activate just as Lionel arrives. Alrighty, so Connor, this is your first time on the show, but I know you listen, so you kind of know how this works. Cold open here, what stuck out to you? What do you want to talk about? I mean, I'd I'd say it's one of those classic instances, and you could really, you could really say this for so many different aspects of Smallville and so many aspects of you know Clark growing up. It's a classic situation where two characters having just a one minute conversation where they lay out you know what's going on uh, would really just solve everything. Um, yeah. Usually, it's not usually it's not Jonathan you associate with that, but yeah, he's just being very very just uh, what's the word. Um, Jonathan's just being very vague about what's going on. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's again, another situation where if these characters just had a, a conversation with each other, they really could solve all their problems, but alas. Yeah. yeah we, we wouldn't have as much drama in that case. Now we um, sure wouldn't. But. Yeah. Again, Jonathan being his typical stubborn, obstinate self just, you know, wants to recover, wants to go back to doing things exactly the way he could. But I, I kind of tongue in cheek wrote that he was putting a critical piece of equipment on the barn. I don't run a farm. One of the many things we can add to the Wikipedia, things that I don't know or do, but I can't imagine the weather vane is so critical to the operation of a farm. Cause there's a part where Martha even says, you know what the doctor said about taking it easy. Yeah. The last time I checked the doctor didn't have a farm to run, but you're up on a roof, putting a weather vane. Like it, again, I don't know. Maybe there is, maybe that's critical to like something, but I don't think so. It's again, it's you have a son with superpowers. What are you doing? And you can tell Martha's thinking the same thing. She's just so like aghast that Jonathan would be up there yeah. putting a weather vane on it. Again, like you said, such a mundane uh, aspect of running a farm. But again, you know, it's, it's Jonathan wanting to have control over every part of his life that you could possibly have control over. And it, 
it, it almost leads to his death as we see later on. Yeah. And I do actually, I, I like the little bit of physical acting that Jonathan Schneider does there when he, when he, you know, he, the first, the Sonic thing is fine, but then he, when he actually loses his balance, cause obviously it cuts to a stunt person actually doing the fall, but you can see, I don't think they had the composite technology back then to do this, but it looks like it's actually Jonathan doing the little slip and fall sort of thing. And I thought that looked really, really good. Uh, he goes to tumble. Martha cries out for Clark. Clark comes rushing over. And, and this is a typical thing that happens in a lot of superhero media that always just makes me kind of laugh. Is the way Clark catches his dad, I don't know that would have stopped him from dying. Because it's not like he like cushioned the blow. All he did was catch him like two feet short of where he would have landed anyways. Clark is super strong, so it, there's not a lot of give there unless he like lets it give. It it is it seems like it wasn't a like a, a softening of the blow. It was just shortening by two feet. Though he did roll out of the way so the weather vane didn't stab him. So I guess that was helpful. But I just always like it when we see someone like catch someone, but then there's a clear indication that they are like slowing their fall rather than just like abruptly stopping it two feet short of where they would have landed anyway. Yeah, that's got to be a couple broken bones for Jonathan, at least. But he's, you know, he's too important to the plot in this one. So they couldn't have him laid up in the hospital. Not not again. I mean, he just got there, too. They probably haven't yeah, started, yeah, made their first payment on that uh, triple bypass. He does. Uh, he calls Clark Jorel or Kal-El, which is kind of uh, it's sort of shocking. Is like, the honest when he did that, it was it really was like a double take. Like, you know, that, that's a weird thing. But I feel like there's a leap of logic here because Clark jumps straight to the key is talking to you. Jorel's behind that. And, you know, maybe with the history, it makes sense. But I thought that was a bit of a quick uh, assumption to land on. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there is kind of an inherent lack of trust that Clark feels towards Jarrell, and it it makes sense that once Jonathan starts acting strangely, starts calling uh, starts calling him Kal-El, that he may make that conclusion that uh, that Jarrell's behind it. But yeah, you're you're definitely right that it's a leap of logic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get an interesting cut. So we cut to to uh, Lionel, who we saw at the end of last episode. He has a gun in his mouth, and again, I know this could be triggering, but you know he's about to commit suicide, and the phone rings. And he he answers the phone and uh, he's like, oh, he is. We'll get the chopper ready. And, you know, we learn quickly, basically someone has called and said, hey, Clark Kent is down in the caves. And that's enough of an impetus for Jonathan to, or excuse me, for um, thinking Jonathan Glover, for Lionel to not commit suicide now in the hopes that this might further his ambitions of finding the cure. And then he shows up and it seems like Clark just got there. I mean, he's still in the throes of like, you know, calling out for Jarrell. He's holding the key up. He's trying to get contact. How quickly was was Lionel able to get from Metropolis to the caves, even by chopper? You know, like we've established that it's like roughly a three hour drive. So I would say, you know, 180 miles. That's at 60 miles an hour. If it's a straight shot, you don't have to take any toll roads or any bypasses. You know, I, I, I looked online, a helicopter, average speed of a helicopter is 160 to 180 miles per hour. So it still should have taken them like an hour of flight time. You know, it would even say 30 minutes to be very conservative. That still seems like he got there in 10. He he got there super quickly. And, you know, you'll notice that as the show goes on, I, I don't know how you are about like spoilers, but as the show goes on, the distance between Metropolis and Smallville gets smaller and smaller yeah. until, you know, by season seven, season eight, I, I think actually... 
Lionel says at one point, oh, it's a small town right outside Metropolis, which we know that's not true. I mean, I, I don't really understand where that came from, but regardless, yeah, it, it really is an instance of Smallville teleportation where they get where they need to go just based on, based on yeah. the plot. I think it's in like season nine or 10, but there's a, there's a point in time where Lois and uh, Clark are commuting to Metropolis every day from the farm. You know, so, and I don't know this, I don't know that he's yet super speeding them there. I think they're driving. So it was like three hours each way. That's a long commute anyway. Um, but we have this really cool scene with Lionel talking to Clark. And once again, Lionel is always, you know, he's talking in a way that lets us know he knows more than, than we think he does. But here he kind of like, he doesn't hide it as much. He's just like, says like, oh, I think you do know. I, you know, he's like, I do think you know where the key is or how to use the key or how to, that kind of stuff. Um, and it just seemed like, I guess, because of how desperate he is and how close he seems to be to, to dying, either by his own hand or just by the disease he has, he's sort of cut a little bit of that veil of secrecy. I thought, I just thought it was interesting that he was so much more blunt and direct here than we, I've seen him before. Yeah, I mean, there is a level of desperation, I think, from Lionel, given the liver disease you were mentioning, that I don't think we normally associate with that character. You know, he he loves to be in control, right? Season one, season two, he's always, even when he's talking to Lex, he's always the one who's in control of the information, he's in control of the conversations. But, you know, there is a time limit on him, and I think you're right. I think he really does kind of let that veil slip. Um, I'm going to be, like, the, I'm sure, 20th guest to say this. John Glover's so good. Like, he, he is, is just, he him and Michael Rosenbaum, really, to me, like every scene they're in, you know, you can tell uh, the dialogue is elevated, just the acting level for really everyone involved is elevated. Um, honestly, if it weren't for John Glover and it weren't for Michael Rosenbaum, I'm not sure I would have kept watching this show. They just really, really elevate the material. And it's it really is just like a coup that they're able to get John Glover on the show for so long because he, he is just incredible. He, he is. And, you yeah. know, you mentioned the Inside of You podcast with Michael Rosenbaum. I also listened to it. Not every episode, but, I, you know, I pick and choose the guests I listen to. And by far, my two favorite episodes he's ever done is the John Glover episodes, yeah. uh, partly because of the Smallville connection. But John Glover is just an amazing dude. And listening to him talk is amazing. So if someone listening to this has not listened inside of you, please go seek out the, at least the Jonathan Glover episodes. And you probably will be, uh, again, you may not listen to every episode of that show. It's really good, but just, I don't listen to all of them, but it's definitely worth your time. I think. It absolutely is. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then Jonathan says something, I keep saying Jonathan because of John Glover. Um, Lionel then says something about, you know, ask about Jonathan. It must be hard seeing him so weak. Uh, you know, and Clark's like, well, I love my father. And he's like, of course you do. I love a son's love for his father. There's nothing to compare to it, which is pretty interesting because I think this is the episode where don't we, you know, again, Lex is actively working with the FBI at this point. Um, but but uh, Lionel says something interesting because you only get one. Do Are we to believe at this point he has some idea that Clark actually has a Jor-El father figure, or is that just a turn of phrase that it has meaning to the audience, but it really doesn't mean anything in the show? You see, I, unless I'm misremembering earlier episodes, I don't know how he could possibly know that. So I'm just going to assume that he yeah, had some sort of turn of phrase. It may, it may also be kind of a indirect reference to his own relationship with Lex, you know, given the just fractured trust that there is mm. at that point between those two characters. Uh, it might be kind of a, it might be kind of telling about how he thinks of, you know, Lex's relationship with himself at that point right no i I would agree um and then you know lionel notices something about the cave wall has changed the opening where the key would go is open again it's like it's no longer covered over and he kind of remarks on it but then clark zooms off i don't really count this showing uh lionel his powers even though i've sort of 
use this same version earlier episodes, but because they are in the caves and it's such a twisty and windy passageway, I think it makes at least some sense that Clark would have been able to get far enough away that, you know, it, it wouldn't be that remarkable that Clark got out of sight so fast versus like if they're on a stretch of highway and, you know, you can see five miles in every direction, uh, but it's yeah, kind of close. Yeah. yeah. All right. So anything else in the cold open? Uh, you know, we touch on most things, but if there's anything you want to circle back to a particular performance line of dialogue, just anything that we didn't already talk about that you want to touch on before we move on? I don't think so. I mean, again, you, you mentioned the rundown that Jonathan was being just incredibly snippy and just kind of very curt towards Clark. Uh, again, it's a situation where if they just sat down and had an honest conversation with each other, a lot of their issues would be solved. But yeah, I don't, I guess I understand given, you know, Jonathan's character, like given how he tries to act as a dad, I guess I understand from a character perspective why Jonathan was so, I guess, short and direct with uh, Clark, but really just very unhelpful if you're trying to solve the issue. A hundred percent agree. All right. So let's move into our first act. If you don't mind, will you read that summary for me? For sure. Uh, Lionel's interest in the caves has been reinvigorated. Lex wears a wire. Jonathan becomes fatalistic. Clark goes to the Talon to read up on psychology, and Lana tries to be supportive. The FBI have noted the Luther's interest in the cave and in Clark. Lionel goes to visit, visit Virgil Swan, who at first rebuffs him, but then says maybe they can work together. Excellent. All right, thank you for reading that. So, yes, yeah, so now we're jumping into our first act here. Uh, you know, again, I've commented on this before. Sometimes the, the act structure seems really weird. Like some acts have almost like one scene and the others have like 20. And they just, but you know, it, it's just sort of the, each episode's a little bit different. But I think this episode really picks up steam uh, because that cold open is, you know, we really only have two scenes. We have our core, you know, Kent's. And then we have basically Lionel. And then here, you know, things just start to mix and percolate. And um, I mean, I guess that's what I think this is a fun episode. I really like this one, even though it's not really, again, it misses a lot of the tropes that I, I love in the show. But it just begin, you get a lot of Jonathan Glover that like, what's not to like, right? Yeah. Uh, but so first act here, is there anything that you want to talk about in this act that stuck out to you? Well, I mean, again, just you, you get John Glover and Michael Rosenbaum in the same scene. You get that Lex Luthor dynamic. It's going to be money every single time. Um, I was just, you know, th this is the first uh, Clark and Lana scene that we have in this episode. And obviously it kind of ends in a uh, very major turning point for Lana's character. And, you know, I am curious. I, I, I get the impression that a lot of the fandom uh, of Smallville seems to think that Lana kind of overstayed her welcome as a character, you know, that maybe if she had left for Paris permanently, or maybe if, you know, she had just guest appearances after season three, that it would have been, you know, kind of a, it would have done her character, I guess, more of a service. Uh, I, I know you've talked about kind of like projecting forward with uh, Lana's character more, but do you think once she left for Paris, do you think that should have been it for her character? Or do you think that there's still value to be found in her uh, later storylines? Um, sort of a little bit of both. I, I don't think she should have left at the end of season three. I do think she should have left after high school. I, mm -hmm. I, I think it makes total sense for Lana to be the love of Clark's life through high school. That's a very formative time in a lot of American kids' lives, not for everyone, but for a lot of us, you know, high school is the defining point in our lives. So we figure out who we are and who we want to be and her being the girl next door, you know, he loved her since they were kids and they finally got to have a chance to get together. I think all that makes sense. I think maybe she should have went to Paris after that. Maybe she went to school in Paris. You know, she was, she lives her program. So then you have the idea of the guest spot. She comes back or maybe Clark goes to visit her. And, you know, what, what wouldn't be bad about a small episode in Paris, but I do think she stayed way too long. And I get, you know, there's things with contracts and, you know, Kristen as an actress, a lot of people really loved her and they wanted her to be a part of the show, but 
And again, and they didn't know they were going 10 seasons. Like, it, I don't think at any point, other than when they were at the end of nine, did they know that they were going to go to 10 and 10 would be it. So I think, you know, it, it, it wasn't like they had a 10-year plan and they said, okay, we're going to leave, you know, Londa's going to leave at the end of four and then we're going to have Lois for the back six or whatever. I think if they had known that, they probably would have. But, you know, the fact that they're kind of doing every year to year and in some cases even episode to episode, I don't blame them for it. But looking at it, you know, to sum up, looking at the whole series as a whole, yes, I think she stayed way too long. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it is, you know, really especially in season six and seven, which, you know, we can talk about uh, the famous Lexana, which was just like a complete mess in my opinion, but (laughs) it's um, not good, but really a lot of her character in the later seasons just revolved around her relationship with Clark. And, you know, I want to say maybe if they gave her her own storylines, maybe it would do her, her character more justice. But then when they tried to do that, you had the witch storyline, you had like the vampire storyline and she just, she became all of these things that I don't think Lana Lang is just like supposed to be as a character. They really made her into, I guess, whatever the plot demanded at the time. And I don't know. I just, I, I really think they did Kristen Kruk a disservice because I, I do agree with you. I think she's a great actress, uh, especially in the later seasons, honestly. And mm-hmm. I don't, it, it just is a little frustrating to me what they did with her character. Com- completely agree. Um, I, I think it's interesting. Again, we get a little bit of, of Lex talking to Lionel and it's not overt, but I do think there's an undertone of that, of that conversation. And again, I think this is the acting chops of both Michael and and Jonathan that Lex feels uncomfortable because he's wearing the wire. And I feel like he's trying to steer the conversation away from these things that Lionel wants to talk about right now. And he's like, Lex, you know, Lex wants him to admit to something. And I feel like it's all there, even though it's not overt. And I just, I really appreciate that. I also really appreciate Lionel just sort of laying out some facts that anyone in Smallville should have put together, that Clark found the caves. The symbols on the cave showed up on his barn mysteriously. There was that explosion at his farm that no one could explain. He disappeared to, to, small, or to Metropolis for an entire summer. Like all these things that anyone in Smallville should be putting the dots together going, you know what, there's something weird with this kid, but no one else seems to do. I just thought that was really fun especially Lexi would think she had to put this together because I mean he's so obsessed with Clark he's so obsessed with trying to you know as he said put all these pieces together but yeah the fact that Lionel puts it together before him is pretty pretty wild given Lexi's just obsession with the kid yeah completely um one big thing that I called out so I think this is like after that scene we have uh Lex go to where the FBI are stationed and I'm like 99% sure that this is the same location where Lex drove off the bridge. Like it's the same shot. It's like basically where Lex meets Jonathan and, and Clark after Clark saves him. And I, there are probably production reasons why that was the place they chose to park the van. But I kind of feel like there might be even like a meta thing here where that's when Lex's life changed. You know, he, when he met Clark, he was saved and it set him on this journey to become first Clark's friend and then ultimately Superman's enemy. All of that happened at that bridge. So to put the FBI there and that's where Lex goes and he has these conversations, I feel like this is the, the show telling us this is another big change. This is where Lex's animosity and conflict with his dad went from sort of like familial and just like business to like th- this is a turning point that they'll never recover from. I just don't, do you have anything, do you think, am I anywhere near right? Do you have any other thoughts on like why they chose to put that as the location the FBI would be at? No, I, I think you really might be right. And, you know, really for me, I guess the legacy of this episode, if you will, you know, unintentional pun there. But for me, the legacy of this, of this episode is just fundamental shifts in relationship, in relationships, right? Because 
you know, Clark and Lana, you know, Lana finally kind of takes agency over her own life, finally, you know, kind of gets out of that circular relationship that they've been in. And you're right, you know, the uh, Lex Lionel dynamic kind of shifts as well and becomes something more insidious. So yeah, I can definitely, I, I think you're definitely right about the symbolism. And I didn't even pick up when I was watching the episode, I, I didn't pick up that that was at the bridge. But, you know, since you brought it up, yeah, I think you definitely might be right about that. Right. And again, I'll make this my first call to action to the audience. If you're listening, if you have any thoughts on that, if you have any insight as to why they may have chosen that location and what it might mean, both as like any part of the story, I'd love to hear some thoughts and opinions. You can email the show at smallvillefancast at gmail.com. So then we cut to Jonathan. He now has the key, but Jonathan's being very fatalistic. He talks a little bit about, you know, what his life was worth. And he says something here. He says that you're lucky, Clark. You won't ever have to face your mortality. And I don't know why he says that. Like, you know, there is, you know, I I don't, I'm not aware of any Superman story, and I'm not aware of many of them, that he's immortal. Like, he's a super long-lived being. But there are plenty of comics where he dies. Sometimes he comes back. Sure, that's a comic book trope. But, but, you know, Clark Kent slash Kyle L has aged from the time they found him from like a four or five-year-old. Now he's a teenager. There is nothing in, in the show that I can pick up on that they would make think, them think that he's immortal. And I just don't know why they would say that. Yeah, just a strange bit of dialogue there, like you said. And, and yeah, he does age at a regular human rate. You know, you, you, you can see, as you were saying, from when they pick him up as a kid uh, in the field. So, I, I, yeah, very strange to me why Jonathan would say that. I, I don't really understand it either. Yeah, so... I don't know. Uh, he does say something about reevaluating, reevaluating his choices. And of Clark, course, man, I can't talk today. Clark <laughs> jumps to the, the, the worst possible one, like, you know, like taking me in. Damn, like that. I just don't. And there's a couple times this was where I think Clark jumps to the com- complete wrong conclusion, even though he has plenty of information that he shouldn't, which is sort of like the opposite Smallville leap of logic. He has plenty of information, but he still jumps to the wrong conclusion. But I just felt like that was kind of harsh and unnecessary. And there was, I don't think there was anything in that scene to make Clark think he was talking about Clark there. Did you see anything in there? Yeah, I I didn't see anything either, but I do agree with you. That is kind of something that that Clark likes to do. He does the same thing with Jor-El's message where Jor-El says, I can't remember the exact wording, but he says something like you were sent here to conquer and, you know, Clark immediately, you know, that's, that's the end of season two where he like completely freaks out about it and tries to, (laughs) tries to rectify everything when it may have been something a lot more benign. So. Yeah, you know, Clark, and all teenagers do this, right? That is a very, I guess, teenage side of Clark, where he's immediately reading the worst into everything uh, that anyone says to him. That's, that's very relatable, I would say. I definitely have been there. Yeah, well, it's true, and especially as someone his age, but yeah, it, exactly. I, it still felt a little bit out of character to me. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I did think it was a little bit funny. Clark says, you know, you're tired, and he wants the key back because he um, doesn't want to call any more attention to it when just moments ago... Clark was trying to use it almost in front of Lionel. Like he didn't even use his hearing to make sure Lionel wasn't there. So I just thought it was funny that he's like kind of chiding his dad for being all willy nilly with it when he just about gave up the game, you know, 12 minutes ago or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I don't know if that's like, you know, limited budget. You don't want to have him just casually using his powers all the time, but there are so many instances in Smallville, you know, not just this episode, but so many others where like just casual use of x-ray vision, casual use of super, super hearing, right. Really could have solved so many problems for Clark, but he just, it seems like he doesn't want to use his powers until he absolutely has to, right. And yeah. he, he really could have made life so much easier for himself. Absolutely. 
so Clark goes to the Talon, uh, and he's reading a book on the assessment and treatment of psychological disorders, which at this point, I almost feel like I need to add that into one of my questions. Is, is someone reading a book that directly relates to the essential theme of this episode? <laughs> We get our first needle drop, Once in a Blue Moon, by Eddie Brickle is playing. Uh, some of the lyrics I pulled out, she said I tried to mind my own business, but that sad look on your face was a challenge to my faith. And I think this ties into Lana, you know, not being able to help asking what's going on and getting involved in Clark's business, um, even though maybe she shouldn't. But I mean, I think this is a nice moment. I mean, if you have... You know, if you see someone in a public space who is a good friend of yours reading a book about psychological disorders and you know they're not in college, they're not in a class for that, (laughs) you're probably going to say, hey, what's going on? Uh, So I actually really like this conversation. You know, uh, Lana talks about her surgery and how depression is a major or is a common symptom after a major uh, surgery. I I thought all that was very natural and friendly and like, you know, comforting and the type of stuff I want to see from them, too. Um, Anything in those first couple scenes that we haven't touched on you want to hit before we move on? Yeah, that that was a great scene between Clark and Lana, as you mentioned. And, you know, sometimes, especially uh, in the loft scenes to close out episodes, sometimes the uh, the uh, dialogue can be really kind of stilted and very, I guess, like, directed towards what the plot was for that week. But, yeah, I mean, you know, Lana just trying to be a supportive friend here, trying to support Clark, because, you know, they, they do still have that love for each other, despite, you know, what Lana ends up deciding to do later in the episode. They do still have that love for each other, and right. I, I really do. I, this really was a nice scene between them, like you said. Uh, and it made me think of something I meant to say earlier. Um, so in, in the you know, possible touches on the mythos, when Clark catches Jonathan, he says, what were you trying to do, Dad? Fly? So mm. again, my, my, yeah. kind of like a tangential connection. Because at this point, Clark has no reason to think he could fly. Like, I mean, yeah, he has these other powers, but, you know, flight is kind of like a, a step above. And then I think in this scene, uh, Lana says, there's nothing you can't recover from. And I think he's trying, he's thinking about more like emotional but that is sort of touching on the fact that he's kind of invulnerable and impervious. So those were the two that I thought were like, uh, you could maybe make a case, but I don't really think so. And then Clark says, you know, what if you screwed up something so badly you could never get it back? And is he talking about he and Lana or is he talking about what Jonathan had to do to bring him back after the red K and that, that relationship with his dad is fractured. I'm not sure which way they go, or maybe both typical Smallville, maybe, you know, two for one here, but did you hit on that at all? A little bit of both, I think, to answer your question. And that is, especially in seasons one and two with the uh, Lana, Chloe, Clark, I guess, love triangle, if you will, there was a lot of that where, you know, the conversation starts with them indirectly referencing one relationship. And then over the course of the conversation, it turns into talking about something else entirely. And you can just mm-hmm. tell with how the dialogue is. I, I think it's a little bit of that. Yeah. And when, when he does says, when he does say, excuse me, what if you uh, screw up something so badly, you can never get it back. I, I think he's more talking about his relationship with Lana there than anything else. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, and then we cut to, well, uh, sorry, New York, not Metropolis. Cause this is uh, canonically New York in this episode for some reason. Um, where they meet Virgil Swan, again, played by Christopher Reeve, meeting with Lionel. And I know, I know I've touched on this before, but this scene makes no sense with what they do later in the series when they have that Veritas retcon where Lionel and Virgil Swan were both part of the same Veritas society that knew an alien was coming. Like, that clearly, this scene would not play out that way if they had that familiarity. They already knew each other. They, they play as strangers meeting for basically the first time. 
Yeah, they. Uh, I can't imagine there's any way that the writers had the Veritas recon in mind when they were writing the scene. And uh, yeah. yeah, you know, I do want to say real quick about Christopher Reeve. Uh, obviously, I was saying before, you know, I don't have a ton of uh, experience, a ton of knowledge about, you know, the Superman mythos about the uh, Superman movies. But I do want to say, you know, especially for being in the health condition he was in, he he really uh, played Virgil Swan very well. I think he was stronger in this episode, you know, acting wise than he was mm. in Rosetta in season two. I think he did a really, really good job. And, you know, it's nice. I, I say this with no disrespect to Tom Welling, but, you know, you get to play off of John Glover. You get to have those, I guess, acting chops in the room with you. And it really does raise everyone's game. And yeah, I really do think Christopher Swan did a uh, great, great job here as Virgil Swan. Yeah, I do. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, I, I, I do as well. Now, I, I, I bought the uh, Smallville Companion Guide for season three and for season four. And I've been reading through. They have a little like two or three page thing for each episode. And a couple things that was called out in this episode that I want to touch on is one, they did mention even in that they said like, so this is like, uh, you know, Miles Miller and Alfred Goff saying they thought that Christopher Reeve did a better job in this episode playing Virgil Swan. He, he seemed more comfortable. It also, he already knew everybody. So like the first one, he, he had to meet the production team. He met the actors for the first time. So here there was already a little bit of familiarity, which I think also played into that as well. And he was just in a great mood, that kind of stuff. But they did mention that, they had because of uh, Christopher Reeve's schedule, they filmed the scenes with Virgil Swan a month before they filmed anything else. And it notes specifically in that companion guide that the script wasn't even finished yet. And I've mentioned a couple other episodes that I wasn't exactly sure how this how the season was structured in terms of writing, because like today, it's pretty normal for a show to have every script locked before they start filming. Like they know everything that's going to happen. They still, there might be some changes and tweaks, but for the most part, they'll have them all written here. That is clearly not the case because they literally a month from filming, they had not locked in the script. So I have sort of like, you know, thought about touch on what's what I'm looking for. Um, hypothesized that some of the things that we have seen in the show were responses to episodes reaction to like the audience reaction to certain episodes. Like I mentioned in the last episode of crisis, I felt like a big part of that storyline was them trying to fix Petey's character because they destroyed him in velocity. And I'm, I'm, I'm just now more convinced than ever that that is what was happening in some cases that they, cause it was so quickly, they didn't have everything finalized that if they had an episode come out and you know, nothing was working or they, something was working. They're like, Oh, we can do more of that or less of that. So I just, I kind of somewhat got confirmation that these episodes were not written in stone before they were filmed. Um, that companion guide kind of helps solve that anyway. So they agree with you as well. They thought Christopher did a better job this episode. It also was interesting. They film his scene inside the, um, oh, crap, I can't remember the name of it. It's like a planetarium, which it looks cool. But it makes no sense that he would be having these conversations in a hallway. Like, are we supposed to believe that in this world, Virgil Swan owns the entire planetarium, that entire building is his, and there's no, like, public access? Because it just seems like that's a weird place. Again, I'm jumping ahead, but it's like the end of the episode, we see he has the key, and it's on, like, a stand in the middle of a hallway. That's not where you would leave that. Yeah, I mean, you would think there's at least cameras somewhere. I, I didn't really understand that either. It's uh, I, I, I do think the character of you know, Dr. Swan, you know, a, a lot of, I think his presence there was because they wanted to get Christopher Reeve, uh, Christopher Reeve involved, excuse me. And sure. I, I yeah, I, I think even at the time, as you mentioned, they were kind of figuring out how much of a role they wanted him to play. Uh, I know it's, it said, uh, 
I believe in the companion guide to season five, because I, I have some of those same companion guides. It said that they wanted him to be a part of the season four premiere, but he couldn't because he was filming something else. Um, so I, I think a lot of it was kind of piecemealing what they wanted to do with the mm. uh, character of Virgil Swan. But I am well, one question I did have about this. Uh, you know, Dr. Swan kind of calls Lionel out, says, you're dying. You yeah. know, Lionel says, how do you know that? And then he says, as I said, curiosity is an admirable trait. How did Swan know that, do you think? Like, was that supposed to be some sort of, like, just intuition he had? Or did he read into his medical files? Like, I, I didn't, that kind of caught me off guard when I was watching the episode. Yeah, I, I think because we find out that Swan knew that Lionel had been intercepting the emails between Swan and Clark. So if he knew that was happening, he probably would start investigating Lionel. And if he has that access, he probably broke in firewall Chloe style hacking and probably saw, probably has an idea of what the research he's been doing. Probably has, you know, he probably knows all the medical stuff. So I'm pretty sure that was him saying something he knew rather than intuition. But I mean, if someone were to say, no, it was intuition, I'd be like, okay, I guess that works too. But my guess is that he has done the investigation because he says curiosity is a, you know, the positive traits. I think he's just dug into him. But I just think this whole scene back and forth is really well done. Again, it doesn't make sense with the retcon, but for right now, it's great. I love the line where... Uh, oh, so now you believe that he has it. He trusts you. Would uh, you be willing to talk to him? It's such a small price to pay in exchange for the answers you've been searching for. Yes, well, I know what I'm after. But what do you expect to find? But it kind of, it sort of ends in this weird place where, um, and they also both do a little over the shoulder. I think I left that out in the rundown, but they both are over the shoulder in each other here. Where he says, uh, you know, you don't even know what would happen if you put the key in the wall. He's like, but I'm, that's a risk I'd be willing to take. And then he's like, oh, well, then maybe we're, we can work together. I get the feeling at the end of the episode, this was all a play because obviously Virgil Swan now has the key and he, he's not giving it back to Lionel. But at that moment, are, were we supposed to think that Virgil Swan had his own intentions and he would be willing to, to maybe screw Clark over to get to them? Is, is that what we were supposed to think, do you think? Yeah, I think the, I think the character of Dr. Swan, you know, we really don't know his motivations at this point, you know, even though, of course even though he had, you know, all those conversations that he did with Clark uh, earlier in the season or in season two, excuse me. Um, I just, yeah, I, I think we're supposed to be a little unsure about what Dr. Swan's true motivations are. And yeah, I, I do think at this moment, we're supposed to believe that, you know, maybe he would be willing to work with Lionel if it benefits him or if it mm -hmm. gets him closer to, you know, understanding, I guess, Clark's origin. Uh, I, I, I do think maybe we should be uh, trying to see that. All right. So anything else in act one you want to circle back to before we move on? I don't think so. No, just uh, as you're saying, you know, dialogue and acting all A plus, you know, this is not a very tropey episode, like you were saying, which, you know, li little unfortunate for the entertainment value, but yeah, it's a, just very, very strong episode and yeah. yes, strong actor. All right. So we'll jump into our second act. Lionel has the cave operation in full swing as Clark drops in. Lionel is closer, he says, than Clark realizes. The FBI, question mark, raid the Kent farm and appear to find the key or at least find where it was hidden. Clark opens up to Lana, and they share some kissy time, but she pushes him away, but is in tears. All right, so now we're into the second act here. The caves are now abuzz with activity when Clark comes to visit again. Lionel is back there, has all the same machinery, it seems, from before. A lot of plastic, transparent 
I don't know what those are supposed to be doing. Um, and Lionel just directly asked Clark how he opened the keyhole. So again, he sort of dropped all the facade. He's just like, I know you know what's going on. Tell me. And then Clark kind of loudly throws out that he's been blackmailing his friends to spy on him. So they're both just like, all right, you want to have this conversation in public? Let's have this conversation in public. And, you know, I just kind of, I like the fact here that Clark's trying to hold his own. I don't think he's ready to do that with Lionel, but he didn't like back down. And I, I like that quite a bit. He's not even close to ready to hold his own with Lionel, but yeah, I, I, I do. Yeah. I kind of like it. Cause you do see him, especially in the earlier seasons, uh, you know, sometimes with Lex, sometimes with Lionel, you kind of see him, you know, when it comes to those, I guess the war of words, you do see him back down a lot. And yeah, it was nice to see him just kind of go after Lionel here. And it, it is also, again, kind of cool to see Lionel in a more desperate frame of mind and a more, I guess, you know, tr- trying to get what he wants more immediately instead of being so cagey about everything. Cause mm-hmm. again, it's, it, it is a pretty big uh, turn of character for him. And uh, yeah, I think this is a really strong scene. Yeah, I like it a lot. And then it, it ends with Lionel saying, you know, I'm closer than you think. And then we cut immediately to the FBI, cool, again, question mark, raiding the Kent farm. Again, I assume you've probably watched some of these episodes more than once. I don't know. But did you think that that was actually the FBI or did you kind of like figure out or did you believe right away that this was not, this was something Lionel was doing? At the time, yeah, I thought it might have been the FBI. Um, you know, you, you do always sort of have that sense that Lionel's behind really everything that happens, everything that's <laughs> everything negative towards the Kent. You're always like, is Lex involved? Is Lionel involved? What's going on? But I think at the first time I watched this, I, uh, yeah, I, I did think it was legitimately the FBI trying to yeah. search for it. And man, they thank God that the Kents have a superpowered son because the barn in their house is just in tatters after this. Like they just, they completely yeah. just. And again, I, it's, it's, it's so bad what they do. Another thing I've, I'm not, I'm not an FBI agent. I have never executed a search warrant on a farmhouse, but it seems like they were more interested in trashing the place than finding anything. Like I is like, if I was trying to search someplace, I would try to do it orderly, you know, but they were just like throwing crap everywhere. It's like, how do you know you didn't just cover up something you were looking for? I don't know, but this actually goes, I'm kind of jumping in, but this goes to my sort of selfish use of powers. Because after Jonathan and Clark come back later and find the farm, you know, just raided and wrecked, we do see a scene of the barn where it looks like the barn has already been put back together. And then in another scene, Clark comes back to the farmhouse and it's still a wreck. And I'm like, dude, you have superpowers. Fix your house. Your poor mom is on her knees picking up photographs in the living room and you're like putzing around. You could have the entire house put together in five minutes. Clark, what's wrong with you? Your dad just almost died because he was trying to do work on the house. Like, yeah, he he really should have stepped up there. It would have taken him five seconds. And we had, I think it was in season one when he throws the party and like everybody leaves his house trashed and he does the little montage super cleaning. He cleaned the house in like literally like two minutes of screen time. There's no reason for Clark not to have done that for his mom. Clark, you're a jerk. I love you. You're better than that, though. Uh, <laughs> but the FBI raid the farm, and they very much go to the lockbox, the little toolbox inside the other toolbox that we have seen multiple times this episode. That's where the key stays. That's where the key stays. That's where the key stays. So I do think this is somewhat manipulative, but in the, in the way that I want my shows to be manipulative, is like the way some like good books are written where like there's really no reason for us not to have seen them open it and find the key or not find the key. But it makes us think they did, so that later when we get the reveal they didn't, it's like a ha-ha moment. So I think the editing here actually was really well done to, to, to make us believe something and then use that assumption against us for dramatic purpose, which, again, I think shows should do 
uh, if it's done done the right way, it's a positive experience. It's, it doesn't feel manipulative. It just feels like, oh, that was that was a good turn because you made me think a thing, and then you know, is my my reason I should have known better, but I didn't, and you use that against me to make the show more more uh, entertaining. So good on you. Yeah, Smallville, you know, I mean, th- definitely a flawed show in some ways, and it definitely shouldn't have gotten 10 seasons, but yeah, that was one thing they were always really, really strong at, was when it comes to these major uh, plot threads, they were really good at uh, subverting the audience's expectations, and yeah, this mm. is another example of them doing that. I agree as well. Uh, we get a scene at the Talon, where um, Clark is calling home, because again, cell phones, just not everywhere yet even though i think we've seen in other episodes that he has one but whatever uh so he apparently is out looking for jonathan john is jonathan's missing um lana is there clark gives her a little over the shoulder and you know there's a line of dialogue that you never have to apologize for opening up to me and then we get our kiss we get a big kissy moment and i know later lana talks about how she's unsure and i think even there she kind of pulls away but not at first like this was very much a mutual appreciation to begin with and we get uh, another needle drop here. Seals playing Divine. And the lyrics I pulled out were, give me love. Love is what I need. Help me know my name. And I think that could even be interpreted a couple different ways that, you know, their love for each other is what sort of like they how they self-identify. Like they are Lana in love with Clark and they are Clark in love with Lana. Uh, and that when they're together, it's that that's who they are, who they are, or who they're supposed to be. Uh, I don't know, but I thought that was a pretty interesting, fun scene. Again, it's always nice to see Kristen and uh, Tom pushing the lips together. Uh, anything else in this act you want to talk about? Um, nothing I can think of. I mean, I do just feel so bad for Lana in this scene because <laughs> she has been getting jerked around by Clark for you know the better half for you know the better length of two seasons now. I mean, first off, Lana should have never talked to Clark again after Red or after Rush. Like, let's be honest. You know, the two times they you know, finally figure it out. They finally kind of get in sync, try to go on a date. Both times Clark ends up, you know, making out with some other woman, right? Yeah. You know, J- Jesse and Red and then Chloe and Rush. So I don't know why Lana still talks to him. I don't, I don't know why, you know, they're still friends, but this is finally an example where Lana's taking agency over her own life and doesn't, I guess, define herself by her relationship with Clark. And it is really, really cool to see, again, the, uh, you know, the fundamental nature of these relationships uh, shifting in this episode. Mm-hmm. Well, I def- definitely would agree. All right, so now we're into the third act. If you'll read that summary, please. Clark and Jonathan have a heart-to-heart in the cemetery. Lana opens up to Lex, and Lex appears to warn Lana to not reconnect with Clark. At the farm, Clark and Jonathan arrive to find it ransacked, but the key isn't gone. Jonathan had it the whole time. Yep. So we open on the cemetery where Jonathan is there looking at the graves of his parents and Clark visits. So, you know, again, it's not quite a tropey thing in the Smallville, but it's happened more than once where we have these scenes in, in a cemetery. And I do actually kind of like the line where... How'd you know to find me out here? When I'm searching for answers, I turn to my dad. I guess it runs in the family. So I thought that was kind of a sweet moment. Uh, we get a little Jonathan over the shoulder here too. So there's actually a lot of over the shoulder this week. Uh, looking at the um, gravestone, it looks like Jonathan's dad died at 56. Seems pretty young, probably not for like, that would have been like what, I don't remember, like in the fifties or something, but uh, pretty young to lose your dad, I think. Yeah. Oh, um, Jonathan says, I don't know how to protect you anymore. And Clark's like, that's not your job. Your job is to teach me to protect myself, but I still need you and mom needs you. Very good. Like, again, the the emotional through line of this episode is actually very, very solid. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and the uh, relationship, I mean, between the entire Kent family, but specifically between Jonathan and Clark is really, to me, one of the strong points of the series. You know, that 
And, and this is, again, another example where Jonathan's realizing that maybe he needs to let go just a little bit. That, as I said, he, you know, can't just protect Clark from everything anymore. He can't be that uh, constant authority figure in Clark's life that's constantly, you know, protecting him from the evils of the world and trying to protect his secret as well. That, you know, he's trying to learn to uh, let go a little bit. And I, I really think this is a reflection of, you know, this is something that every father and every parent really, uh, I shouldn't just say father, that every parent uh, has to go through at some point where, you know, they see their kid growing up, they realize that, you know, they, they're not, they may not necessarily need their parents 24 seven anymore. And mm-hmm. I really think this is really kind of good reflection of just Clark's growing up and may not need Jonathan day to day quite as much anymore. Yeah. There is definitely a very mature sort of reading here by Clark and, you know, and, and it's not the complete switcheroo, but it is a little bit of Jonathan's actually the one who needs care now. He's the one that needs emotional support, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even physical support because of the surgery that, you know, it, it, it's sort of a, a role reversal where the where the, the child becomes the caregiver to the parent. They're, we're not quite there yet, but I think this is like a, a touching on that. But I think overall, just I think the emotional through line of this whole episode works really, really well for me. Uh, I like to touch on a lot on how some of the A and B storylines are like mirrors to each other or they're echoes to each other. And I'm not sure I have a great read on this one, but I, I think there's some interesting dynamics because we have the the Lionel-Lex relationship where Lex is now actively working against his father. I don't think Lex knows how desperate his dad is. I don't think he's been informed yet about the di- diagnosis or what's going on. And then you have where Jonathan is sort of pulling away from Clark because he has a secret, there's something going on with his health that he's not fully sharing because of the the deal he had with uh, Jarrell. So it's sort of like a weird mirror and an echo because it's Lex pulling away from Lionel, but Jonathan pulled away from Clark. Both of them not fully understanding what the other one is doing. Again, I don't know if it's a clean uh, reflection, but I think that's kind of what they're going for there. I think there's, I think that was intentional. The Lana part is the one that doesn't really fit. I guess that would be like the C storyline. But here's where we have the scene we did for our cold open. And I picked it in particular because one, I think Kristen does really good acting here. I think her crying as she's trying to like talk, I thought that was great. Maybe, maybe the best I've seen from her in the show so far. It sort of hints at the Lana Klana or was it Lexana thing? Where Lexa, Lex- yeah, I, I, I can't keep track of all the shipper names, man. But yeah, I think it's Lexana. <laughs> but there's definitely a little bit here because I think what's interesting is it. It seems like Lex is telling her to let Clark go. Like I mean, I think I think the most generous reading you can get here is to tell Lana to be careful because Clark is Clark. Clark's going to Clark. No matter what you do, that's how that how that's going to work out. And up until now, I'm pretty sure. Lex has always been on the side of trying to get these two crazy kids together. Uh, you know, he's done things, he's manipulated things, he's tried to help them, but it, this seems to be a very clear of, you know, maybe it's in your best interest to not. And I'm just not sure what the change is, why it's happening here. Is it because Lex is starting to have those feelings for Lana, or is he just realized, you know, it's not going to work out? And I, I, I'm just not sure. Do you have any thoughts on why this might be such a clear change in direction for Lex? You know, I, I think Lex always had those feelings for Lana, though. Like, you can even go back to season one. There are definitely some moments. Like, I'm thinking about Nicodemus specifically, where, you know, Lana's infected by the Nicodemus flower. He's, uh, she's flirting with Lex, excuse me. And Lex kind of hesitates a little bit. Lex, you can kind of see he's like, I kind of want this, but I shouldn't. And I, this is an instance of a storyline where if this, if this was made in 2021, they either would 
drop this entirely or they would make Lex out to be much, much more of a villain for going after Lana because this is grooming, right? I mean, it's, right. It, it is classic grooming. You know, you've got uh, Lex who is a, you know, grown man in his early 20s, I think even when the show first started. And then you've got Lana who they met when she was a high school freshman. And it's just, you know, I, I, I don't think they made Lex out to be as villainous uh, as they probably should have or would have if they made Smallville today. But yeah, it's just not a great storyline this whole lexana thing really just kind of i don't know it, it it's it is a strong basis for season five and season six and i don't know it's kind of a pretty disgusting element of lex's character that i think gets uh downplayed maybe because of what it was made or that's just like not what they were going for right and, and is i think part of that too and this is just me in supposition is because it, it does seem pretty clear that at some point lana was actually manipulating lex Yes. Maybe more yeah. so than Lex. So it, it, it is sort of thing where she, I think she got out of that relationship what she wanted. And again, I'm, I maybe misremember, but I know that at some point she like turns the tables on him and she tried to, like she uses her resources against him. And so I, I think it, it sort of pushes itself away from him grooming her and taking advantage of her, though it does seem clear that did happen. But at some point she takes her agency back and actually sort of turns the tables on Lex. So, so maybe that's why it's not as frowned upon as so harshly. And also the, you know, it was unfortunately years ago and some of the things have, you know, society's mores have changed a little bit, but I don't like it. Not, not even just from the, the kind of the weird age difference, but just, I just don't like it as a plot line. I don't like it at all. I think, I think they've been better off without it. Again, it's just a symptom of Lana. Why is she still there? Should have never happened because she shouldn't have been in the picture though. In my yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, but there's one little moment here at the very, very end of that scene. Cause it's a very, I mean, it's like, it's in the, the mansion it's dark except for like the fire. So it's almost sort of a romantic light situation anyways. They're having this very emotional conversation. Londa's kind of pouring her heart out about the doubts she's having. And Lex kind of says, hey, you need to be careful. And at the very, very end of that scene, Lex smiles. And I don't know why. My personal opinion is I think that was the end of the scene. And he was smiling as Michael Rosenbaum at the, the work they had just done. And they both, you know, did a great scene and he was happy, but maybe it was Lex. Cause Lana's not really looking at him. Maybe that was Lex going, aha, it's working. So I don't know. I don't know if this was a Lex smile or a Michael Rosenbaum smile. My heart says it's a Michael Rosenbaum smile. It probably is. Cause you know, if Lex is already at the point where he's trying to, you know, intentionally get Lana away from Clark and towards him. It is a little out of left field because there is, you know, I, I do think there is still a good part of Lex as we're about to talk about, you know, later in this episode, there is that part of Lex that still wants to be friends with Clark, but still wants to work with Clark. And I, I understand in a vacuum why Lex is giving Lana this advice, especially, you know, given how unhappy Clark continues to make Lana, you know, I, I understand why Lex is doing this, but yeah, the smile almost indicates that there's something more nefarious about it. And it, again, would seem a little out of left field given where their relationship is at this point in the show. Hmm. So I get another call to action. If you think this is a Lex smile or a Michael smile, let me know. I'd love to, <laughs> love to hear what you think. All right. So um, so I mentioned earlier how I actually thought that the the sort of misdirect of the FBI, quote, unquote, FBI, found finding the key was good setup so that later when we find out that it wasn't actually there, it's, a, it's an effective reveal. I, I want to take some points away. I'm going to give a couple of deductions because of how that information is conveyed. Because when Jonathan's like, it doesn't matter. And of course, like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? And he's like, how can you say that? Right. Yell, yeah, yeah th that, that was over the top. That was not, 
done great. Like it could have been a lot more. They don't have the key because I have. Like it, it could have been a lot more, like lower tone, a little less temperature in the room. But I just that seemed like it seemed like the worst way to give that reveal, even though I thought the setup was good for it. So I'm deducting a little bit of points. And then also, if you see the way Jonathan Schneider is holding up the key, he's clearly trying to catch the light because at some points it's very clearly reflected, and other points it's a little bit dark. So I can just like you can see him like sort of twisting it, trying to catch that light perfectly, uh, which is fine. But just it, it was funny that it stood out to me so much. Yeah, Clark really does take it from zero to hundred in the scene for no reason. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a TV show. I'll, I'll, I'll allow the drama because, you know, they're, they're trying to kind of subvert your expectations again. So, yeah, yep. in reality, would it play out that way? No. But, again, it's a TV show. You kind of yep. got to forgive it for that. Yeah, you know, if it, you know, it's got its ups and its downs. I still love the show. You can, anybody listening, I love the show. But I, I do call out the things that I don't like as much as others, and that was one of them. All right, so into our fourth act here. Clark bursts in on Lex, upset about the FBI raid and his father's interest in him and the caves. Lex tries to be consoling to Clark. Hmm. Lex tries to be consoling, but Clark follows him and learns Lex is working with the FBI. He doesn't fully understand until Lex makes it clear that the actual FBI didn't raid the farm and that they, him and the FBI, are trying to bring Lionel down. Lex also shares that Lionel and Dr. Swan are working together. Clark then goes to visit Dr. Swan and learns of another message, a new one coming from Earth and not meant for him, kal all right, so I feel like I've been talking too much. I'll turn over to you first. What do you want to talk about in this act? I just got to fire his security team, man. I, I know this is a part of <laughs> this is a part of like almost every episode, but you just you're just letting this high school junior just burst in on you know seemingly a very important meeting. I don't know if those were investors or what the deal was, but you literally just let him burst into the living room of the mansion, just yelling about you know the FBI raid. Uh, I don't know. I, I yeah, Lex's security just got to go, but um, yeah, I, Clark's superpower is not subtlety. That, that no. is absolutely no subtlety. And um, I did the the site that I used to get the the transcripts from also had the German or sorry the Swedish translation. So when we first see Lex, apparently what he says is we have to reduce the costs. And then when Clark comes in and you know kind of makes it seem like he's not going to go away, he says, "Gentlemen, it's late. We'll talk tomorrow." I don't know that's the actual translations, but that's what that website says they are. Gentlemen, it's late, aka a high school junior just burst into my room, and now this is the second most important thing. But yeah, yeah, I so so Michael Rosenbaum was speaking like he that was um authentic Swedish that he was speaking according to the transcript site. I don't know, again, I don't speak it, don't understand it, so I don't know. But the, the website that I go to get the, the transcripts for our opening reading that's what they said. He said, uh, I thought Lex was acting a little bit weird there, and I'm trying to figure out is it because of the scene with Lana just before. Or is it because the FBI is listening and he's trying to keep Clark from saying anything that he doesn't want Clark to say? I don't know. I just I, I thought there's a little bit of oddness there, but I think it's intentional. I just don't exactly know why yet. Yeah, I, I'd imagine it's the FBI, especially given you know the scene that directly follows it, where he goes up to the uh, FBI trailer. Yeah, it's it's probably just him not wanting Clark to speak out of line, especially given you know that Clark Clark's already coming in there on on some hostility, and I, I think that he is just trying to get Clark to kind of not say anything he'll regret later. <laughs> but yeah, I do think, come on. I mean, it, it's one thing that Clark is such a fi- fixture at the mansion. I'm sure everyone there knows him. He knows he comes in all the time. Lex seems to be cool with it. But you, there's a difference between letting Clark on the grounds versus letting Clark walk in on in a meeting with you know business partners. That's That's a bridge too far for me. That absolutely should not have happened. It's a fun scene, but it, 
doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So here's an issue I have, and and actually, as we've been having this conversation, I, I have another reading has come to mind, but I'm going to talk to, I'll, I'll go with my first reading, and I'll see what you think. So after that short scene, Lex goes and talks to the FBI. He obviously wants to figure out what the heck's going on, too. Clark has followed him, which I think is kind of interesting. We have no reason why Clark would think to do this or know to do this, but he does. And he overhears, using his super hearing, Lex talking to the FBI. And I think it's very clear what's going on. I think what Clark hears is Lex talking about... Look, Luther, this is my show. Do I need to remind you you came to us? Like I had a choice. You know the deal. The FBI is not interested in some farm boy. We're interested in your father. Now get out of here so we can do our work. Just try to stay away from Clark, and they're trying to find, trying to bring down his dad. I think that's what Clark hears. But then Clark way overreacts and like rips open his shirt and pulls out the wire. And it's and that's when Lex has to say, "It's not about you. It's about me trying to bring down my dad." I don't know why he needed to say that. It seemed really, really clear to me that he should have known. But I actually just had another take on it. It just hit me. Maybe Clark is acting here. Because Lex doesn't know Clark has super hearing. So if he was like, oh, you're working with the FBI to bring your dad down, maybe that would have been a little bit too like, well, how do you know that? So maybe he overreacted on purpose because he needed Lex to tell him what he already knew? That's interesting i hadn't thought about i mean i I don't usually associate clark with being i don't know if conniving is the word i I don't know if i associate him with being i guess just you know smart enough honestly to uh come up with that he he is super smart in like book stuff but this seems more like a street knowledge sort of thing i agree that doesn't really fit clark's mo in my opinion but but maybe it's possible yeah i mean we did just see him reading like a grad school you know psychology book earlier so he does he does have that super smart as you're saying but i think what they were more going for with the scene is you know he he only heard the part of the conversation between lex and the fbi agent that you could take out of context uh you know the dialogue i think is look luther this is my show do i need to remind you you came to us and then lex says like i had a choice so if you just take that nothing else if you just take that you know completely in a vacuum out of context uh you would think that yeah lex came to the uh, fbi in order to get the fbi to raid their uh to raid the kent farm so i really do think this is more an instance of clark just only overhearing the part that makes like uh that makes lex look the worst and then taking mm-hmm. everything out of context just like he does with jonathan earlier on yeah pretty, yeah again that's kind of, kind of clark's mo Um, But one of the big key elements that we find out here is that uh, Dr. Swan has been talking to Lionel, and this is obviously his information to Clark, which immediately leads to Clark going to New York and meeting with Virgil Swan. So once again, we have our two supermen, Christopher Reeve and Tom Welling, in a scene together, which is always a good time. Uh, Anything about this scene you want to talk about? Now, as you said, just great to see the uh, two supermen's to- supermen together. Uh, again, when I was first watching this, I didn't even realize that Christopher Reeve was uh, Superman. I thought he was just, you know, a, a random guest actor that they got. So <laughs> with that wow. in mind, uh, really, really, yeah. So kind of saw it in a very different light to begin with. But yeah, really, really good scene here. Um, I do agree with what you said in the rundown. It almost seems like, you know, Clark's got this level of desperation that kind of borders on like, insanity or like he's coming unhinged because he you know he was just you know grabbed lex by the shirt collar just yelling at him you know kind of half threw him uh against the car and then he comes over to swan you know you'd think he'd have time to calm down going all the way to new york but i guess not you know he's still coming on on some hostility and uh 
yeah, I don't know. Clark just Clark just needs to take a breath here, I think. Yeah. But yeah, really, really strong scene as you mentioned between uh, Clark and Swan. Which I do. I mean, I think that may even tie in because Swan even says things about, you know, I thought you might have been ready to learn the truth, but after what's been happening, the explosions, you ran wild in Metropolis, you know, I'm not so sure that you're ready. And Clark's actions right here really just kind of lean into that, that you're not approaching things calmly. And as someone who has all these powers, maybe you should be a little bit more in control of your emotions. But, you know, he, he also goes, I haven't betrayed you. And uh, he ends up getting Swan to share that there's another message that has been coming, but this is a new message, not from deep space, but coming from Earth. And we don't think it's for Kal-El. And it says, I think it says, I'm waiting. Uh, we also get some over the shoulder here too. So there's a lot of over shoulders. Maybe, maybe they made up for all the other tropes they missed this week. No, no <laughs> hospital, no car explosions, no unconscious. They just put a, an over the shoulder in for all of them. Yeah, they, they had this podcast in mind. They had to know that we had to get something in there. So yeah, <laughs> much appreciated by the writers. Yes. So we cut back to the farm where we see that the key is calling to Jonathan once again. I have to keep questioning, why do they keep putting it in that same toolbox? I don't know. It just seems like that's not a very secure place. Maybe you find a better place for it. I don't know. Especially right after the FBI went after that toolbox specifically. I, you think that Martha would kind of think to put it somewhere else. But... Yeah, I mean, she at least had it in the in the bomb cellar or you know the storm shelter and inside a flower tin last year that seemed like a better place oh much much all right fifth act laid out for me what we got what we got going on here jonathan goes to the cave with the gun he and lionel fight when the key activates clark arrives in time to keep jonathan from killing lionel but the key has vanished lana tells clark she's not ready and maybe the one who's missing out on things jonathan seems sure the key isn't in the wall and he's right virgil swan has it good stuff here so yeah so Clark comes home looking for Jonathan, only to find him gone again. Clark fills Martha on what he learned and that Jonathan's getting messages from the key. And this is where, again, Martha's like in the living room on her knees, surrounded by a disaster. And Clark, buddy, seriously, five minutes. Yeah. We cut to the cave where Lionel's there with the FBI, again, quote, quote, unquote, FBI. They said they raided the farm, but they did not find the key. And that's when Jonathan comes in with the gun. Uh, forces everyone but Lionel out. They start to actually like taunt each other a little bit. Again, I'm not exactly sure what this is about, but Lionel says that he raised a weak son and that, you know, if you had raised him like I raised mine, he wouldn't need your help. And they have a fight. And I have to say, this was like one of the highlights for me in this episode. I absolutely loved it. And again, I read that companion guide that Jonathan Glover was very apprehensive about it because, you know, he just wasn't sure how well it was going to work. It's complicated. You got stuntmen jumping in and out. But I think the fight actually it is pretty well done other than I don't think Lionel should be holding his own against Jonathan because we, we've heard time and time again how tough Jonathan is. He did just have a triple bypass. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's that's what we're supposed to remember is like, hey, he's not fully healthy. But I think that Jonathan or, you know, Jonathan Snyder, uh, Clark, that can't think of his name right now for some reason. Jonathan Kent, that's what I should have just wore, wore him out. I do love the thing that Lionel went for the eyes, though. Like, that is absolutely a Lionel move for me, that when he gets the opportunity, he tries to gouge his eyes out with his thumbs, and I was just like, damn! That's crazy. Uh so fighting he, dirty, yeah. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something. So what do you think about this big rolling-in-the-dirt fight between uh, John Glover and Jonathan Schneider? Yeah, g- great scene, like you said. You know, you can definitely... It, it, it is very cut up to... You know, it it is ultimately a, a fight between two, I guess, people who who just don't have a ton of uh, fighting experience. Maybe Jonathan Schneider does. I'm not sure. Uh, he he was on Dukes of Hazard, right? Yeah, that was his kind of big. Okay, so yeah, he he definitely has that uh, stunt 
background then, I guess, if you will. But yeah, you know, a pretty cut up fight, but still a really good one. Um, I thought it was really interesting that, you know, you go from earlier in the episode, you know, Lionel being just desperate, uh, being very, very direct to someone to all of a sudden Lionel has almost become like this super villain where he's just taunting Jonathan, mocking Jonathan. It's like, it it doesn't really play with how he was earlier in the episode, but John Glover was just so good, like mm-hmm. in the scene that I'm willing to forgive him because it, it was just like really, really cool to see, even though I, I don't think it necessarily jives with how he was earlier in the episode. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. It doesn't really seem to fit, but like I said, it's so much fun in the moment that we don't care. Here. It's like, oh, that yeah, exactly. was great. Just don't think about it too much. Uh, it also seems like when the key starts to light up, Lionel just seems to know immediately what it is. He somehow manages to get his hand into and out of Jonathan's coat pocket really fast and has the key. That uh, There might have been some edits there to make that a little bit more smooth in the show, but it seemed like kind of jarring how quickly that happened. So, and again, I, and I don't mean this necessarily in a, in a, in a, like a cruel way, but I do think this episode should have came with like an epilepsy warning. Like sometimes you see like on Netflix, cause that fight scene in the, in the cave with the lights flickering, I don't have that, but I was even like, like kind of like blinking my eyes. Cause it was like really sort of off putting the, the lighting in that scene. I thought it was a little bit rough, uh, but the key starts to float and it starts flying towards the opening in the wall, but it hits one of those like plexiglass transparent screens and, it seems to me like it should have went through it. I mean, this is a Kryptonian spaceship key from, you know, the far reaches of the galaxy. I can't imagine that that was like, you know, transparent aluminum from Star Trek. I feel like it should have just shattered it and went in, but it didn't. And it somehow it disappears. Uh, we don't know how. So, again, I'll jump to the end here. We find out the end, Virgil Swan has the key now. Do you think one of the men in the in Lionel's employee was secretly working for Swan and they took it? Like, how do you think Swan got that key? I, if they do, then they played it really subtly. I, I was actually hoping you could enlighten me on why that happens because that was, I, I was very confused at the end of the uh, episode when I, you know, when we see that it's in the possession of Dr. Swan. Uh, unless we both just miss something, I I don't understand it. It's, it's almost as if, you know, he was calling out to the key or something or the key just knew to go to him for whatever reason. You know, we, we do see kind of that, uh, that element with how it is with Jonathan as well earlier in the episode, but yeah, I, I didn't understand that either. You know, if, if someone, I'll give my own call to action. Like if someone has a better read on it, you know, let, let us know. Cause yeah, that was very confusing to me as well. How Swan ended up with it. Yeah. My only guess is that someone in, in the employee of Lionel is secretly lurking for Swan and, and that's how he got it. But yeah, but even then it's still not a great explanation because they were kind of in there by themselves when it went against the plexiglass transparent screen sort of thing. And then all the security guards come in with their guns. And at first they're focused on Jonathan and uh, Lionel, but then the key was then gone. Uh, the hole also covered itself up again because Lionel sort of like he, I guess he guesses or thinks or is sure now that the key is inside the wall, uh, which it's not because uh, we get that scene at the end with Jonathan and Clark where Jonathan says it's not in there. I, I don't know how I know, but it's out there somehow. And that's when it transitioned to, to Swan. Uh, but kind of the last big thing we get is we get a scene with Lana. She comes to the farm. So again, comes kind of a long way to have a short conversation and leave. Happened a whole lot this episode. Uh, as she's pulling up, Mona Lisa by Grant Lee is playing, or excuse me, Grant Lee Phillips is playing. And the only lyrics I could really pull out were, ain't nothing stays the same, which seems in my mind to relate to the change in relationship of Lana Clark. When she comes here to kind of say she thinks it's over. Maybe they just need to stop the will they won't they and just be like, you know, we're friends, but but it's never going to be more than that. And then that's the only way we can really, um, you know, I guess be happy and move on. Yeah. 
Again, you know, good for Lana here. She's definitely, you know, making the right move, in my opinion. Uh, again, it kind of goes back to what we were saying, you know, if they ended it, if they just had Lana as, you know, a major character in Smallville end here, I think she would be remembered much, much more fondly by the fans and she would have been a much more effective character. You know, unfortunately, she comes back for five more seasons of uh, Will They or Won't They? But mm-hmm. it is really cool to see Lana kind of take agency over her own life, really for the first time that we can see, because, you know, that is a lot of her plot thread in season one as well as her not just being you know the cheerleader who's dating the football star you know realizing that she's not happy with that life trying to kind of take more agency firms for herself excuse me and uh this is a continuation of that but yeah I mean tough tough conversation to have with Clark here obviously but I I, I do think you know you, you said it was a long way to go for a short conversation uh, I don't think you have this conversation over the phone I think Lana did the right thing you know driving over to Clark to essentially break up with him even though right. they were, I guess technically dating at the time Mm-hmm. Though, again, I'm an old man, but at least in my day in high school, we would do this over notes in the locker. Like, I, <laughs> I've absolutely given people a, I think we're through, and I've also gotten the, I think we're through uh, letters from people uh, in oh, just, gosh. you know, because we didn't have text, we didn't have email back then. It was like, you'd write a note, and like, hey, I think we're we're done. It's like, oh, great, thanks. Um, but I also couldn't drive when I was a uh, junior in high school because I wasn't old enough and I don't think they are either, but Hey, no one seems to care about that. All right. So I think we pretty much hit on all the big elements, but one last time, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that maybe we skipped over or you want to circle back to? No, I mean, I, I do just want to say, you know, this is, it, it's a very interesting episode to kind of have my, you know, first appearance on a podcast because it's really not your typical Smallville episode at all. You know, we don't get any high school scenes. You know, Chloe and Pete, I, I didn't even mention this, Chloe and Pete aren't even in this episode. You know, they're just, you know, there was no room for, I guess, like a D plot with them, if you will. You know, I don't think there was really room for them to be in this episode necessarily, but this is not your typical episode of Smallville, but really, really a strong one. I think one of the better, definitely one of the better ones in season three. And again, there are just huge uh, progressions with the different relationships in this in this episode you know between Lex and Lionel between Jonathan and Clark between Lana and Clark you know they're just this is just a very very big episode for the future of the show and yeah I think they you know even though we can have some nitpicks here and there that we mentioned I think overall this is a really really strong episode I think so too I think because a lot of the emotional weight are put on John Schneider and John Glover you know, and again, I, this isn't to say anything about anyone else. And I think Lana holds her own, or Kristen holds her own in in the scenes that she does. But you really have some of the better actors, some of the more mature actors, really bring in uh, some emotional weight. And like I said, there's some big changes. You know, uh, you know, we're really getting a lot of information. The, the key is calling out. We still don't know what's going on with Jonathan. Lionel's becoming desperate and more direct. Lex is working against him with the FBI. Like, there's so many big things happen this episode. I, I do think it's it's a really good episode. It's a really fun episode as well, even if it doesn't hit some of the classic tropes I like so much. Uh, so any final thoughts? I know, again, you kind of just wrapped it up, but anything else you want to talk about this episode before we move on? Nothing that I can think of now. Okay. All right. Then man versus Superman. I like to look at every episode it's kind of through the lens of, you know, the, the show's exploration of the conflict between what the life Clark Kent wants versus what he's destined to become with this heredity, you know, this destiny to become Superman and the heredity of a Kryptonian. So with that in mind, do you have any thoughts on this particular episode? Yeah. Um, I think again, and I apologize because I don't have a ton of knowledge about the uh, Superman mythos, Superman character, but no I do think I do think a lot of what we see, especially in the second half of this, and especially in that final conversation between Clark and Doctor Swan, is kind of that uh, that path towards the emotional, I guess, stoicism that you need to be Superman to be, you know, kind of the 
caretaker of the world because you know we see Clark again kind of go unhinged uh, like you said in the rundown you know like said in the episode uh, he has these just very very emotionally I guess fraught conversations with Lex and Dr. Swan where if he had hailed them in a different way maybe things would have worked out better for him but um I, I do think that is kind of a path that we're seeing Clark t- uh, continue to take you know as he continues to you know a just grow up you know just the process of getting older and getting more mature and be right. you know as he figures out how to handle his relationship with Lex. I think that is something that we see here is sort of the uh, journey towards emotional stoicism that he needs in order to be Superman. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. And I, I think this is another episode that does just sort of like restate that central thesis of the episode, because all of the problems Clark has is because of who he's destined to be. His relationship with Lana, which seems to be at a, at a breaking point is only that way because of time and time again, his, Kryptonian heritage and his his powers have gotten in the way and forced him to lie to her, forced him to manipulate her and not be there in, in the ways that she needs when she needs them. The thing with his dad, like the fact that the key is calling to him is a direct relationship to the fact that Jonathan had to go after Clark when Clark was on Red K and he put his his emotional and physical health in, in jeopardy. Lionel is desperate to find out the secret of Clark to use it for his own benefit, which is another thing, you know, Clark can't tell the people who who he really is because there are too many people that would take advantage of it. So this episode, literally every issue in this episode stems from who Clark is and it gets in the way of who he wants to be. So I just think this is another good episode of like, this is absolutely what the show is trying to do, which is probably why this is an episode I enjoy. Cause I think the shows that the episodes that stick to that theme generally do better. I think later on it gets a little bit, a little bit watered down when you get like seasons six and seven and you know he's yeah. he's basically superman without the costume at, at that point but these first four or five six seasons i think it's my favorite episodes are the ones that really land on that or if they're just like really tropey and they lean into the fun then it's okay as well all right well connor thank you so much for being here i think you did a wonderful job i was happy to have your insights in the episode and talk to you about it uh but before we go officially you had a chance to leave your pass the torch question that i will ask next week's co-host so what do you want me to ask him I did. So, you know, we see uh, Lana get the opportunity of a lifetime here uh, with Lex's, you know, financial assistance to go to Paris. So I was wondering for your next co-host, uh, if you had the chance to try to rewrite your life somewhere new, like Lana did, and you were able to get Lex Luthor's financial help, uh, where would you go and what would you do? What would your, I guess, what would your path be if you were to take the same route as Lana here? All right. That's a really fun question. I'm interested to see what our co-host comes up with. Uh, no, a lot of times when I have uh, these shows, my guests are, you know, podcasters or game designers, writers. I don't know that about you, but do you have any social media people could go if they want to chat with you about Superman or about Smallville? Or do you have anything that you'd like to plug here? Yeah, I mean, no, no real uh, social media presence, I guess I will say um, I am in, you know, this is very out of, out of left field, but I'm in a Madden league that has a, a Twitch page where we, we do game commentaries, we do, you know, podcasts for our league, stuff like that. So it is a better league network on Twitch. I'll, uh, Michael, if you don't have it already, I'll uh, send you the link for that. But Please. That, that's really my only major social media presence. You know, I can't, I haven't tweeted in like three, four years, so I, I, I can't say I should really plug much else. But uh, yeah, yeah, if y'all could uh, give that a follow, I'd appreciate it. And, and uh, thank you again so much 
for having me on, Michael. I'd, I'd love to be on again if I get the chance. Uh, of course, again, I thought you did wonderful. I'd love to have you on in the future. I will put those links in in the show notes. And then just because, again, we do start the episode off kind of with Lionel and, again, in a very desperate situation, I'm going to put the suicide hotline uh, number in this episode as well. Yes. Um, as for myself, you can find me at the RPG Academy. Almost everything I do can be found there uh, other than this show, which has its own Twitter, its own Facebook, and um, its own email, smallvillefancast at gmail.com. I know at the beginning, the little blurb I put together, I talk about a catacomb. It's that gaming convention I do each year. I just held it uh, this past weekend. I'm emotionally and physically drained. It's so much fun, but it is so much work. So I'm way behind on all my podcasts. I have, I have like several episodes that I've been editing that I'm, I'm behind on. So there, we may end up with a break. Like I tried really hard to go through all of season three without missing a week. It's going to be close. I may, I may end up having to miss a couple to catch up, but I'm going to try. But I appreciate it, If you haven't already followed me on those places, please do. Uh, I do post these episodes on Reddit. Um, I, again, I have a lot more luck on Smallville subreddit than do anywhere else. But if you see it, an up you know an upvote or a comment really helps more more people find the show, and then you know maybe more and more different co-hosts. Um, and then again, one more time, Patreon. I have two patrons now that support just this show specifically for as little as one dollar a month. You can help support the show and uh, help me have the money I need to do bigger and better things. All I have an RPG Academy Patreon. It's been around for years. I don't have a separate one, so you'd have to do it together. But if you're interested, let me know. And then finally, the Discord. Again, it's almost all RPG stuff. It's almost all like movies and video games and stuff. But there's a channel for Farm to Fable, not very active. But if you're interested, let me know. I'll send you the invite. Maybe if we get more people there, it'll become more of a conversation piece. Uh, but with that, just remember to please stay after the closing credits for the scoreboard. Farm to Fable is a Smallville rewatch fan cast and is not officially affiliated with DC Comics, Warner Brothers Television, the CW Network, or any other owners of Smallville and or its related source materials. As such, these companies retain sole ownership of all symbols, images, names, logos, and other proprietary material related to Smallville. Our use of logos, images, names, likenesses, and sound clips are being used under the Fair Use Guidelines. Our logo was created by Michael Waldschlager II. You can find Michael on Twitter at LoserMLW. Farm to Fable is written, edited, and produced by me, Michael Ross, with additional input by weekly co-hosts as credited in each episode's show notes. And now, let's check the scoreboard. All right, so total number of vehicles wrecked, we're still at 53, because we had no new wrecks this week. Total number of times a person has been knocked unconscious, we're still at 139, because we had no new unconsciousnesses this week. Uh, so looking at our main cast, Alana has still been knocked out 15 times, Lex is still at 14, Jonathan is at 10, Clark is still at 8, Chloe is still at 7, Petey's still at 6, Martha's still at 5, and Lionel is still at 3. And the total number of times someone goes to the hospital. We are still at 54 because we had no new visits this week. So looking at our main cast, Lana's been to the hospital 5 times, Jonathan 4, Petey 4, Chloe 4, Lionel twice, Martha twice, Lex twice, and Clark has been just the once. And finally, the total number of times Clark tells or shows someone other than Lana's abilities, we're still at 65 with that giant freaking master.